Okay, folks, here we are at the broadcast once again. I'm Greg Bendian, your host and uh, monitor of all things interesting and cool in music. And uh, wow, today's today's going to be a fun one because is whole, that on your business card, by the way? Your monitor, monitor of all things cool and interesting in music. No, but that's my reputation. Do people still have business cards? I don't think so. I just had a, a new one made. I'll show it to you at some point. Wow. I haven't so, had one since the 90s. Go so, ahead. Thanks for interrupting my my introduction that's going to be so glowing. But Come on, this, man. You know, it's a fun house. This guy has been on the music scene covering it since the 70s. He is a music authority on many historical figures in, in my book and has written the books on Jocko, Pastorius, Michael Brecker, Pat Martino, Cab Calloway, Keith Richards. His, his interviews have touched on people that I'm going to ask him about, like Keith Jarrett, Frank Zappa, so many amazing figures. Alan Holdsworth, of course, is, is someone that we both share a love of. And I'd like to welcome my friend, Bill Milkowski, to the podcast. Hello. Hi, Bill. I haven't seen you, I don't think physically, since a musical box gig, maybe. Wow. Yeah. You oh, maybe in the audience at various gigs here and there. Yeah. Oh, I know. Including what you were telling me the other day, the workshop that Alan Holdsworth did at Cutting Room. I was there, you were there. Sad, but beautiful. I'm, I was honored to, to be there and to get to ask a question that had some impact, apparently. Mm. So, um, yeah, our Allen moments are our special moments. That and our John McLaughlin moments and our Cecil moments and on and on and on and on. My Tiny Grimes moment. I could tell you about that. You know, you even know who he is? I don't know if I do. All right, so Tiny Grimes was a guitarist. He had played with Art Tatum during the war years. Then after that, he joined a group called Cats and the Fiddle, which was a R&B jive group. Um, and uh, then he had a group called the Rockin' Highlanders, which is another R&B group. And they, are, they all wore kilts. That was their little, uh, that, that was their signature. Um, so I was loving this guy in like 76, 77. And I moved to New York in 1980. I didn't even know if he was alive. I had no idea. So I get to town. I look in the voice the first week I'm there. He's got a residency at uh, Sweet Basil. He plays every Monday night. So I'm like, what? Tiny's alive? I'm going. Me and my friend Rick Wyman went down there. Uh, I would go every week. And let's see, I arrived in New York September of 1980. I think it was September. And I'd see Tiny Grimes every Monday just because it was somebody I loved. He was coming out of the Charlie Christian tradition and he played a four string tenor guitar. Uh, so meanwhile, one night I'd go down there a few few weeks later and I went every week. And I'm, I doing a, I'm doing an interview with him between sets. And uh, he cuts me off in the middle of a sentence and he goes, hey, you hear they done shot that Beatle tonight? And I'm like, what? What are you talking about? It was John Lennon. And 
he told me, so Tiny Grimes broke the news to me about John Lennon's assassination. And I walked outside and people were like crying, walking around like zombies in the village. And me and my friend Rick went right up to the Dakota. There was a mass memorial candles and stuff and people singing songs. But just so funny, ironic that this cat, Tiny Grimes, broke the news to me about John Lennon. I should, one little correction in your introduction. Okay. You, you stated that I wrote a book about Cab Calloway. No. Well, I, I said that, yeah. He's well, on the cover, but it's a, it's like a genre book. It's called Swing It, an Annotated History of Jive. This yeah, is my third which book. he was, was an ambassador. He was, but Tiny Grimes was in that book as well with those groups I had mentioned, Cats and the Fiddle, Fats Waller, Harry the Hipster Gibson, all these cats, Slim Gaylard, of course. Uh, I was enamored with that music like early mid seventies. Hmm. At the same time, I was digging fusion. It was Return of Forever and Slim Gaylard. Dig that. Uh, but uh, yeah, so that was my third book that came out, and uh, it's a compendium of jive for those who care, and I still do. <laughs> it's it's an evolving form, isn't it? Well, anybody who wants to have some fun on the bandstand and. It continues to this day to people like Kermit Ruffins, who's coming out of that uh, happy-go-lucky kind of entertainer, Louis Armstrong tradition. You know, he's like the uh, current uh, incarnation of that. Uh, I brought it up to present day and included, you know, chapter on woman, women jivesters, Connie Boswell, Ella did a whole bunch of jive albums. Um, Ella Mae Morris, Annie Ross, a bunch, you know. So each chapter breaks down into different aspects of this quality, which is this, uh, you know, this kind of uh, entertainer quality that Miles later rejected pretty much, and uh, which opened the uh, floodgates for being very serious on the bandstand which continued all the way through and including the Young Lions uh, thing in the 90s. That's but this was a point. different That's time and uh, just different time and people were having fun on the bandstand and I, I dug the humor and I dug the rhythmically, I dug the music. Yeah, that's that's really interesting about, about attitude of how you present the, the music. And I wonder, do you, would you say to go to present day, if you look at figures like uh, Missy Elliott or Flavor Flav, are they within that scope? Definitely Flavor Flav, especially uh, the uh, <laughs> Star Spangled Banner he sung the other night at the Milwaukee Bucks game, which was a riot. He's an entertainer. He's coming out of that tradition. No Cab Calloway, no Flavor Flav, essentially. And it continues. It's a continuum of music um, that you know, I enjoyed and I still dig rhythmically and the improvisational aspects. And like I was saying, Tiny Grimes, who played with those novelty bands, was swinging his ass off like Charlie Christian, very much so in that school. And uh, being a guitar fanatic, that caught my ear. And Louis Jordan, of course, you know, perhaps 
the biggest of them all, the uh, king of the jukeboxes in the 40s. Man, this is a whole topic we can get off into, but maybe that's a separate show. Well, yeah, it's there's so many topics we can get into. I kind of try to make a small list of things that uh, that I do want to hear from you about. And then, you know, we can talk about anything. And and, uh, I mean, it's it came up earlier today in in my preparation. I, I thought I remember how I first became aware of Bill Milkowski. And it was that you did the liner notes for the classic jazz rock and other album Secrets by Alan Holdsworth. And I thought, oh, this guy knows what's going on. And then I followed you. Do you remember doing that? Uh, are you sure it wasn't Matt Reznikoff? Okay. Then it was it was a, it was a Holdsworth review then. Because yes, okay. that was Matt Reznikoff. But but you had written something about Holdsworth when it was well. See, I knew about Holdsworth in the seventies also. So, I first became aware of him with Gong. I guess that's seventy six, seventy five, and I was wondering when you first became aware of him because you were already aware of of so much stuff. Was it Believe It? Was it before that? Uh. No, I'll tell you how I came to know Alan Holdsworth. So I grew up in Milwaukee, and um, man, there's a whole progression of music that I ended up coming to fusion out of. It's a familiar story of various rock and blues that leads to these bridge elements like Zappa and other people who are at Hendrix, of course. Uh, The first album I bought with my own money was Are You Experienced? I saw him in 1970. Uh, That blew me away. So I was sort of primed to leap in from that into fusion. So when it came along, Ma Vishnu, uh, I saw Ma Vishnu open for Zappa in 73. And that blew me away. Um, You saw that tour. Wow. There were eight shows on that tour. Yeah, it was they played Milwaukee. It was great. A lot of people weren't expecting my Vishnu at all. They came to see Zappa. I think it was the overnight sensation that record was out at the time. Yes. 70s. And uh you know, like it was in an auditorium, maybe ten thousand seats, and my Vishnu opened, but I would say a large percentage of the audience had no idea who this band was. What's this who's this guy with the white and the double neck guitar? What's going on here? So at the beginning of their set, John, as he did typically in the day, called for a moment of silence. And in the from the back row, I could hear somebody yell out, Boogie! <laughs> Milwaukee. Uh, yeah, so that was Zappa. Sort of, that was a bridge for me into uh, fusion. But getting to the Holdsworth thing. So in Milwaukee, I used to hang out at a club called the Bull Ring, which was a mafia-owned uh, little nightclub. And the house band, Sweet Bottom, was killing. They played all the music of the day, including stuff by uh, from Believe It. They played Fred. They played all that stuff. Um, and the guitarist was Daryl Sturmer, uh. who, who was a great guitarist. He was like 
man, I can't believe how good this guy is. It was just a local cat playing at a tiny club that capacity was maybe 50 people, right? And I was just like telling friends, you can't believe how good this guy is. And then uh, next thing I knew, he gets the call to join Ponty's band, you know? And uh, so I'm in touch with him and Holdsworth, the Imaginary Voyage album, no, um, is he's on that. Daryl's on that. What? Oh, on Enigmatic Ocean. That's it. I'm sorry. Enigmatic Ocean. The what is it? The turtle that goes to the sea or whatever. The sea, yeah, big time. Killing. And uh, so, I knew Daryl's playing. He was a pick every note guy. Yep. Very interesting of Jean Luc to have these two players, Legato, who barely picked. Everything was coming hammering on with the left hand occasionally. These fluid impossible lines, legato. Amazing. And man. then Daryl Sturmer, who who picked every note like frantically like Coriel, Larry Coriel, I would say it's Pat Martino. Block. Um that was an interesting juxtaposition that Ponte was smart to have those two guys. But I remember Daryl telling me at some point on a tour of Europe, Alan disappeared. He just like he didn't show up for the gig and he was gone. And that was it. And you know, that was my first indication that, huh, this is a different kind of cat. He just he just felt like walking off the tour, and so he did. Uh, and as we know, that kind of uh, impulsive behavior, what would you say, haunted him through the rest of his career? It certainly was a character of his behavior for decades to come. But yeah. really, that was my first... I don't think I had heard Believe It then. What year did Believe It come out? 75. Same Around the same time. Yeah. Enigmatic Ocean was 75, was it not? Or 76? Yeah, maybe? he has like a lot of stuff right in the first couple of years. He's got Soft Machine right there. Gone. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I didn't, you know, I was amazed by that playing on that album. And I couldn't. I played guitar myself, and Daryl's I could understand. His picking, his scalar approach, his chromatic approach, I could understand what he was doing. Alan, it was so liquid, I had no idea what he was doing on the fretboard. It was like, whoa. I remember Coriel telling me once, like, I remember seeing Holdsworth, and I couldn't understand it because his hands were going down on the neck, but the notes were growing up. What the hell is that? And, and really, he defied any idea that I had of guitar playing at the time. You know, and I came up through the ranks of Chuck Berry, Dwayne Eddy, uh, the, the Shadows and Ventures, B.B. King, of course, Johnny Winter, all that. Fairly understandable, some of it more virtuosic than others. But this was, what? What? It turned everything upside down in my mind. I couldn't fathom it. I never attempted to approach playing like that, although many have. Uh, this guy, Tim Miller, is like unbelievable with his uh, ability to capture the spirit, you know, Alan's spirit almost to the letter of the playing. But Do you yeah, know that was uh, disorienting. What's that? Do you know Frederick Thordendahl's work from Meshuggah? I do not. 
oh, that's somebody you should hear because he's a devotee and he applies it in this whole other musical way. And definitely- There's people all over the planet like that. There's a cat from Japan that I can't remember who was so Holdsworthy and I, I, you know, I mean, it was unbelievable. Of course, now you could do it with AI. Understood, but <laughs> but can you really do what Holdsworth did? I I don't know. No, I because don't... his playing, some people who don't understand his playing felt that it was dispassionate. To me, it was the exact opposite. His playing was so full of heart. It was imbued with so much. Uh, I got the personal drama of his life connecting to the notes that he chose. Yeah. It was it was powerful for me. Jocko had the same effect on me. Some of his playing was so raw and personal that I was crying in the audience. You know, it was like so connected to where he was at in the moment. And I I felt that with Alan is cer certainly, you know, toward the end when he was uh personally like a guy who was uh adrift in the ocean looking for a life preserver and the what he imbued with his music at that point was so poignant and moving uh as well as killing that it's it is extremely emotional so the people that don't appreciate that i i don't know maybe they're just overwhelmed by again by the disorienting approach the the only other player that i've seen like that who just made me of course jeff beck's thing with his hands yeah and the whammy bar that's that's like he's he's creating a new lexicon for the instrument it's unbelievable he's amazing too but dave fusinski uh when i heard him i mean whether he's playing fretless guitar or uh microtonal guitar or whatever his his brainiac approach to the instrument is Sort of unprecedented and equally mind blowing to me. Well, what um, about guys like Ben Monder or uh, Kurt Rosenwinkel? Ben Monder to me is masterful, coming out of Joe Pass, Joe Diorio, that tradition, uh, chord voicings, uh, beautiful harmony. I mean, I, of course, he does a incredible linear thing. I'm so much more impressed by what he does. Uh, his chord melody playing. It's like Wes meets Joe Pass meets somebody on Mars. And it's all so organically uh, intertwined that it's uh, beautiful and masterful. Of course, um, when he's playing with Maria Schneider or some other groups, there's uh, he does have a capacity to step on the rat pedal or whatever he's using and play extraordinarily harsh scronky kind of music which i also appreciate that in itself is a whole aesthetic coming out of sunny chirac and there's a whole lineage of that uh that i appreciate as well but uh i mean he's his whole finger style beautiful classical approach but his harmonic ear and like holdsworth impossible stretches on the fretboard i cannot reach those voicings either what Alan played or what Ben plays. Uh, and it's just a new color that he's bringing is a new tone of beauty that he's bringing to the world 
with his playing, and I I appreciate it very much. He's a singular cat. How about Kurt Rosenwinkel? Uh, amazing. I've followed his playing since he was in that group, Human Feel, if you remember that. Was that the 80s or early 90s? Uh, I'm, I should say, don't get mad at me, Kurt, but I should say I'm less enamored with his choices tonally on the instrument where he's very systematically been trying to eliminate the picking sound with various effects. He's cutting that out so that to me, it sounds like the old electroharmonics synthesizer. But isn't it's that just... the same thing that that McLaughlin tried to do and Holdsworth tried to do with the syntax? Isn't this a, a mania that you guys have about eliminating the pick? Come on. Not me. Don't don't let me in that. Okay. I love to hear but... the resistance. I love to hear the resistance. That's why I loved Larry Coriel, because every time he played it sounded and felt like he was working his ass off. I don't know if he had incredibly high action and thick strings or what, but there was such a resistance there that every solo was a challenge. And will he get through it? Of course, he fucked up a couple of times. So did Joe Pass. But something about that struggle that I loved in Larry, there was a soulful stubbornness to him. Okay. And the way so that he appreciated that he uh, soloed that I appreciated Holdsworth, effortless. It's just an alien person. But but I'm talking about the the usage of technology to remove attack, the synthax, nah. the the uh, synclavier guitar. It's it's weird to me. I don't I don't I don't understand it. Equally, I didn't understand why Jan Hammer, among others were trying to sound like a guitar player on the keyboard. Why don't you play the instrument you have? <laughs> well, I, speaking from my perspective, Bill, yeah, I, you know, um, playing vibraphone and getting tired of the vibraphone sound and, ha and being up against Nels Klein for fuck's sake, I, at a certain point, had to process the vibraphone so it sounded more like not the vibraphone. Like, uh, what is that? The cat? K-A-T? No, I didn't go cat. I went with, you know, pedals and just processed the sound through the microphones. I don't know. It's cool. It's all cool. It's all creative. But you know why? Yeah, because it's a creative thing of, well, you know, what if I wasn't playing this instrument? That's what it is for me. So I'm a hypocrite because I love the wah-wah pedal. I love the rad pedal. Processing is I love that shit. It's just part of total expression. It's another color in the palette, I guess. So is Hendrix the first fusion artist? Um, I would have to say yes, because... Uh, are You Experienced came out in 67. And uh, Mitch Mitchell's playing on Third Stone from the Sun is swinging like Alvin. So, and yet, as we know, Hendrix is playing through a Marshall with various 
devices and there's a rock intensity, there's definitely a fusion of, uh, and he's playing with some jazz harm and he's playing Wes octaves on third stone from the sun. Da, 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 da. Those are octaves. And chords too. Isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. So he's, and like Mitch, man, swinging his ass off over to bar line free like that. That's a, that's absolutely a fusion album. Is it the first? Meh. I don't know. I'd have to think about that. I think it is. But then very shortly after that came two very monumental albums for me, guitar playing albums, of course, Jeff Beck's Truth, uh, 68, but overshadowed, which I I like maybe in some ways more, and I thought was more adventurous, and more of that fusion was uh, Harvey Mandel's Cristo Redentor that came out in 68. That's that cat with his infinite sustain on his Les Paul. And like, there's one tune, I'd have to call up the name of the tune, but he enters and it's like, he sustains one note, like a BB King hand vibrato, but however he's doing it, it goes on for like a hundred bars or something. One note, and there's a band playing underneath, changing the harmony. Uh, is that the Shorty Rogers band? The there's like strings and horns. I think it's Shorty Rogers arrangements. Huh. So again, a jazz cat, it's a fusion. That was 68, but in that same neighborhood as uh, Axis Bold as Love, yeah. Are You Experienced? Um, yeah. But then I, you know, why I had to say, I don't know, I, I have to check the dates of some Zappa records that he, of course, was a Freak out is 66. Okay, but I don't think any was it uh Weasels Rip My Flesh or That's uh, in in the What's the uh, one with uh, uh Peaches and Hot Rats? Hot Rats, that's like 67. So that's fusiony, absolutely. Uh maybe later. But yeah. Sap, of course, loved RB, came up with doo-wop and all that stuff. <coughs> but became a composer, taught himself to read, taught himself how to write, as he said, you know, as long as the libraries are still open, you can teach yourself anything. Exactly. He learned how to read on this incredible level and create classical music. Uh, but sort of in that same realm as Are You Experienced Truth, Crystal Redentor was Hot Rats. I think it was all of a piece in a certain way. Certainly peaked, perked my ears up. Uh, it had this rock thing that I had grown up with. I mean, I I had the advantage, 69. which is a great, it was what? 69. Oh, okay. Same year as Woodstock. So yeah. shit is changing up. But I had the advantage of having a brother who was four years older. So he was feeding me music, you know, from the time I was six, you know, I'm getting uh, Fats Domino and the Coasters and he played guitar. He handed down his guitar to me. I finally got it when I was 12, uh, Dwayne Eddy. And like I said, uh, the Ventures and the first Stones album, all that stuff. So I went through that until parting ways with him 
buying my first album with my own money was Are You Experienced? And then I was off in that direction, seeking virtuosity on the instrument, pretty much, uh, which you couldn't really say was the case of the Stones. That wasn't about virtuosity. It was about an attitude. It was sort of, they were like pre-punk sex pistols in a way. It was raw and naughty and dangerous and alluring all at the same time, but you wouldn't say virtuosic. And that whole trail of uh, Zappa was in there, virtuosic, I thought. Um, McLaughlin, Hendrix, Holdsworth, all these guys. I kind of caught my ear. But at the same time, I got introduced to Joe Pass. So that's virtuosity of another color. I equally admired that. And uh, so I was taking it all in, but pretty much seeking out uh, instrumental virtuosity throughout my developing years, which is why I didn't have any appreciation for Bob Dylan. None. I just like, what? I can't, wh who cares? What? I don't want to be lectured to. Let's just hear you play. Nothing. I had no interest in him until recently when I saw the Scorsese documentary. I was like, holy shit. This guy is juggling words as a writer. I'm now appreciating that aspect. I'm like, this is like Fantasia poetry. It's unbelievable. This guy's a genius. I never acknowledged it because I was too caught up with who's not just playing faster, but like more interesting. Whose unique stamp is on this shit? Holdsworth got me that way. But, you know, I, I missed a whole bunch of music because I didn't care about it because it wasn't killing me. <laughs> I can't hear you suddenly. I only came I, I only came to Dylan later when I had to teach a songwriting class at the university at William Patterson. And you can't get around Dylan if you're going to write, if you're going to talk about songwriting and, and what's words are going to be used, what vocabulary, what the message, what the imagery. Uh, unbelievable. And, and seeing that Scorsese documentary and seeing him labor over the typewriter and suddenly I'm relating to him as a writer and I'm like, Oh shit. He's making choices with words. It's not about the notes. It's not about soloing. I completely ignored that. And then suddenly it was like a door opening up and I was like, this guy's amazing. This is a fucking genius right here. So that was, uh, thank you, Martin Scorsese, for for opening my eyes to that. I was a moron. <laughs> I know, it is. it is funny what we reject as younger listeners and things that become more and more appreciated for their imperfect imperfect perfection and i know. saw dylan um i moved to new orleans in 93 and i was down there for a few years and i saw him at uh what do you call that place the big place in new orleans crap i can't remember uh i i'm i lost my memory for new orleans i can't remember the street names or anything but i saw him there and then I saw him back in New York after I returned to New York in 97. I saw him in an odd gig at the Apollo. 
it was a weird, it was a benefit concert for some charity, a school or something. And Dylan played with Wynton Marsalis' Septet. And Wynton arranged his tunes, all his tunes with that great septet that he had at the time. And Dylan was playing, singing, but with these augmented chords and sus chords and stuff behind him on his familiar tunes. I don't know if it was recorded. Maybe somebody in the audience did a bootleg, but it was very interesting to hear his tunes flushed out through the ear of Wynton Marcellus arranging it. I wanted to ask you about somebody that we are both fascinated by, um, and you wrote a book about him, and that's Pat Martino. Um, yes. I had the occasion to interview Pat for four hours yeah. for the Yale Oral History of American Music, getting his life story in that amount of time, but you spent quite a bit of time with him. Um, I was looking up the date of when I did that, and it was 2013. How does that fit in the timeline with your experience with Pat? Should I tell you the story of me yeah. and Pat? Yeah. Okay. So, so again, I'm living in Milwaukee. I didn't move to New York till 1980. Uh, Joyous Lake comes out, and I'm completely blown away. Completely blown away. And Starbright. I heard him at the same time, pretty much. And uh, I don't think I had heard Pat before that. That was my introduction to Pat. So I hadn't heard El Hombre or any of that stuff. I I got hip to that later. Um, is that true? I, 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 no, that's not true. Correction. I I I had consciousness, and that blew me away. But that was a totally different experience, a different vibe. That was that was like West Montgomery meets John Coltrane, you know. You know, I, I remember going into the um, the record store in downtown Milwaukee, took the bus to go down there. This place was called Radio Doctors. I'm going through the bins. And I don't know, are, are you as old as me? Uh, but once upon a time, we used to buy records based on the cover without having any idea what it was. It looked interesting. We took it home and found out if it sucked or it was brilliant. So this was going through the bins and here's this dark looking cat sitting on what looked to be like a lily pad floating in a pond, mesmerizing me with his look, right? And that was consciousness. And I took that home and it was like, uh, I was just blown away. Um, train energy, uh, incredible facility. But then Joyous Lake was a fusion album and that, while I admired consciousness so much, uh, I mean, the opening track is Impressions. It's so killing. Um, Joyce Lake connected with me because of the electric element and the the rock. I was primed for that record. Uh, I think it came out in 76. And so I got, a, I got word that Pat Martino was going to come to play at Madison, Wisconsin, which is about 60 miles from Milwaukee. So I got excited. My friend and I 
uh, hopped in our car, drove up there to see Pat Martino, thinking it was going to be Joyce Lake with Delmar Brown and Kenwood Denard on drums and Mark Leonard on bass. So we got to the gig and it was like a restaurant and Pat was playing duets with Bobby Rose. And we walk into the joint and the first tune was West Montgomery's Four on Six. And I'm like, wow, this is not what I thought it was, but it's great. <laughs> yeah. So I... I loved it. I didn't get to see the Joyce Lake band. They, for whatever reason, didn't tour that year. And uh, I talked to Pat after the gig. Small joint, uh, maybe 100 capacity. And he was very nice and forthcoming. And his voice was super low and hypnotic. He Svengali'd me. <laughs> but he's like, why don't you come back to my motel and I'll, we can speak more of these things, you know? So uh, I had my tape recorder with me. My friend and I went back, uh, hung out for about 90 minutes. I have the tape still, although who knows about the shelf life of magnetic tape, maybe it's disintegrated, but 90 minute tape of Pat talking about relating the fretboard to pyramids and, five-pointed star and the waves and the ocean and all these spacey analogies that went way over my head delivered in the zen-like this voice i can't get it's an octave lower than that and it was hypnotic and uh so i became a huge fan of his off of that um i moved he has his aneurysm in 1980 I moved to New York in 1980. Uh, a few years later, I was in Cape May, uh, New Jersey, on a vacation, just walking around. And there's a restaurant and the little sandwichy, what do you call it, the chalkboard thing with the gig? Tonight, Pat Azara, right? So he he's making his comeback post-aneurysm under his actual real name, because he's low profiling it to see, can I do this? Am I, am, can I recapture this? Because his memory was erased and he had to relearn how to play the instrument very methodically. Uh, when he woke up from surgery, he didn't recognize his parents or had no connection to the guitar. So very methodically over time, he had to relearn his shit. And so this is maybe 83, maybe 84. He's sort of low profiling a comeback. And I saw him play at that restaurant as Pat Azara. Uh, talked to him a bit. Shortly after that, maybe less than a year, he opened at the bottom line for Stanley Clark. Stanley Clark had a band. And Pat opened. And he was playing that... Uh, that guitar, uh, what's the guitar maker's name? That really heavy, ornately carved instrument. Kevin Eubanks ended up getting one as well. I, I should have wrote this down, but it was an incredible looking guitar that he played. And uh, he sounded amazing to me. And shortly after that, he did his gig at Fat Tuesdays with, uh, was it Steve Lespina and Joey Barron on drums, which became his 
his album, The Return. So now he's back. I think it was 84. And I talked to him after that gig, you know, and maintained this ongoing relationship with him at gigs. He remembered, somehow he remembered me. He forgot everything else. But uh, so then I moved to New Orleans. It's 93. I'm in New Orleans. In 95, I think it was. I get a call out of nowhere from Bruce Lundvall at Blue Note saying, we just signed Pat Martino to the label. We'd like to do uh, like a guitar tribute album where we have a different guest guitarist on each track and we want you to produce it. So I'm like, sure. Uh, I was living in New Orleans at the time, I had to come up to New York and facilitate sessions that were in town. But we also did some uh, in Marin County at Michael Hedges' home studio. Uh, he, Michael, sort of recorded, engineered uh, some sessions that he did with Pat Duets. And then uh, Joe Satriani uh, came in and did some. He didn't, he lived not too far away, I guess, or maybe he was in town for a gig. And and uh, he and Pat did some duets all spontaneously on the spot. There was no preparation no charts, stuff happened really quickly. And um, so I got to hang with Pat a lot through the course of that album, which took a year to record. It was unlike anything that Pat had ever done because he was used to rehearsing a band, going in the studio one day, maybe two days tops. This was stretched out over the course of a year with many people he didn't really know, or as he said, if I met them, I don't recall them, you know. So this was like uh, 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 Kevin Eubanks, who was on the Tonight Show at the time. We flew to L.A. and did a session with uh, duets with uh, Kevin and Pat. And then Charlie Hunter flew in for that from San Francisco with Scott Amendola. And they did Stevie Wonder's Too High, which was a very cool arrangement that Scott and Charlie kind of threw together. Uh, Mike Stern. Uh, man, there was a lot. Um, uh, Tuck Andrus, beautiful. Um, then we did this one track with Pat's Hero, who Pat had played for when he was like 12. Pat's father was uh, a guy who took him around and was sort of a pushy guy that was trying to maybe live vicariously through his son because he played guitar himself. And he actually took lessons with Eddie Lang in South Philly, Salvatore Masso, the great guitarist from the 20s and 30s. So Pat's father, you know, Pat was like the little prince, really. He grew up that way. And Pat's father took him around. My kid can play, let him sit in or whatever. You know, he was sort of taking him down to the barbershop to play for the guys, play Cherokee for these guys, you know? And he was like this 12 year old kid killing it. And uh, so he did that to, he took Pat to uh, a club in Atlantic city where Les was playing and said, play for Les, you know, he played, Les was amazed, sort of noted it. And uh, uh, primarily was made a comment about his right hand technique being so clean so articulate, which was a signature of Pat's, you know, Les was like, wow, 
for a kid so young, you really have impeccable right-hand technique. How'd you learn that? Uh, so here it is now, Pat's doing this blue note record and we get less to be one of the guests. Uh, less at the time had been doing every Monday night at the Iridium on 51st of Broadway. Um, and he, he closed every show with Caravan, right? And I remember seeing him and thinking, oh, this would be a good song for him to play on this record with uh, with Pat, Caravan. So we faxed, this is how old it was. We faxed Pat the sheet music of Caravan. Les already knew it. We figured that would be, you know, very easy for him to slide in there with uh, uh, with Nowinski, Paul Nowinski, his bass player. And uh, so it was all set. We booked the studio. They're going to do Caravan. Uh, Pat shed it on it. Les knew it. We get to the studio. We set up. They plug in. And Les goes, uh, hey, you know this one? And he starts playing, I'm confessing that I love you. And Pat jumps in on it. And they play it. And that was it. <laughs> that was the track that went on the album. Um, and it was great. It got so much airplay. People loved it. It was very romantic. Uh, Pat was just freelancing around the melody. Uh, Les was carrying the melody with his trio. And Pat was just filling call and response. It was beautiful. They did another take, but we used the first take. It was organically perfect and brilliant. Um, another take on that, another track on that album was a duet with Pat and Cassandra Wilson uh, doing uh, Joni Mitchell's Both Sides Now. In fact, the name, the album was named All Sides Now. That was Pat's idea. He wanted to incorporate all the aspects of his uh, creativity. Um, yeah, so Cassandra... Of course, at that moment in time, which is like 96, uh, was very popular, was selling tons of records for Blue Note. She was on the label. Lundball sort of wanted it to happen. The problem was that Pat had never heard of her, didn't know anything about her, and wasn't sure he wanted to do this at all, and sort of very stubbornly refused. Uh, not refused. Uh, he, he considered, and then he agreed to do it. We had a Although, I don't know. Should I say this? <laughs> no. I shouldn't. Okay. I won't. It was funny. You know what, I, what he said. Yeah. Uh, okay, never mind. Um, yeah, so we had a rehearsal. Uh, and I think they rehearsed. It, it was intended to be in the key of C. And Cassandra gets the rehearsal at this small jingle studio in, uh, near Madison Square Garden. And Cassandra goes, oh, I I can only sing it in D. That's my key. So Pat was like, oh, okay. Uh, so he just detuned his instrument down a step and played it. And you can hear on that track that the low E is in fact a low D, but his, his uh, fingering isn't changed from what he had already prepared. And uh, it's beautiful and it sounds great. Uh, Pat, of course, had played 
uh, both sides now on that album consciousness solo guitar version uh so this was a very soulful track that i was glad to get on there um along with all the other stuff the satriani track was sort of a modal fusion thing and uh the the, the stern track was very nice that was more of a written out piece that pat had organized uh i thought it was very successful so that was a whole year of being with pat on and off um sadly some of the tracks some of the situations that we had arranged for didn't come to fruition including one track with bb king um and uh a track that pete townsend had written for pat for the occasion that wasn't able to happen uh, the who was in town at madison square garden for a week and in the off time we had booked a studio to do this track that uh townsend had very graciously written for pat and uh uh it didn't for unfortunate reasons it didn't come to fruition uh the bb king track would have been cool um they were going to do a, a shuffle version of uh, of the Sting tune, Every Breath You Take. <laughs> a shuffle blues version with B.B. singing. Why didn't the didn't it... thing work out? Uh, no? You want that? I'm interested. I can tell you all kinds of dark shit about everything that I've ever encountered. We go including Jocko, including Habitat. So, okay, let me just tell you, Pat, in that moment, Pat was, uh, I would say, struggling uh, physically and mentally. And he didn't have a manager. There was no buffer between him and the label, between him and us, me and Matt Resnikoff, the co-producer. We had to endure a lot of uh, unnecessary uh, psychosis and abuse that that Pat brought due to the sort of bipolar nature of where he was at at the time. Uh, later on, shortly after that, maybe like the next year, he was on some medication and he had gotten married and his wife, uh, Aya, changed everything his diet his you know exercise okay he just became much better in all aspects of his life at that moment he was uh given to very tempestuous blowouts of temper and uh took it out unfortunately on matt resnikoff a lot um so when we approached pete townsend he was all for it. They had met at Pete's uh, suite in his hotel during that week that the Who played at Madison Square Garden. Pete showed him on a piano to the nature of the song they had written, and it was uh, agreed that we would do this track at this studio at this appointed hour. Uh, the day that Matt was going to go to drive to Philly to pick Pat up and come back for the session, Pat changed his mind and was basically like, tell Pete Townsend, I don't kiss rock star ass. 
if he wants to record with me, he's got to come to Philly. So it was some kind of fucking Tony Soprano shit he laid on him. Uh, and so it didn't happen. He blew it off. And that was Pat's mercurial dark nature at the time. But that got reined in after our experience with him when he got Joe D'Onofrio as a manager, who was the buffer, who had maybe a thousand stories that he could tell. And Aya, who who changed his uh, ways in terms of diet and everything. And Pat became, uh, you know, a much, much sweeter, nicer person, which I'm sure is the person you dealt with when you did your interview with him for Yale. Uh, philosophical, kind, uh, sweet. He wasn't like that. Unfortunately, it was a very tumultuous time for him. Uh, it's amazing looking back on it that we were able to even get through that that album. And uh, but you know it was rocky. But then uh, I stayed in touch with him. Uh, that album was out in '97. I interviewed him a couple of times. And then uh, he called me about doing his autobiography with him. Uh, that came out in 2011 maybe we started a year and a half before and um essentially i took the bus to philly he picked me up at the bus station drive me to his house in his giant cadillac pat was of course diminutive but he was like riding his cadillac like a pimp leaning on one side and uh, yeah, we would go to his house. We would sit in his living room on the couch, talk for three or four hours, break for dinner. Either Aya would have made uh, egg rolls and all kinds of stuff and amazing food, sushi and different things. Um, or we would go to an Italian restaurant, then come back and hit it for three more hours. And I did numerous of these trips back and forth to Philly where we sat and uh, and talked and Pat's attitude about the book initially was he wanted it to be a, he wanted it to serve as a self help book like a ways to and that was part of his consciousness of doubt being mindful about things and healthy and uh, in a good place physically mentally in a positive way and he wanted to impart some of these lessons to people so he sort of envisioned it as a kind of a self-help book for musicians. But then I had to pull him back down into reality because he would like sort of get off the track and get very philosophical and flighty in a certain way that maybe would be uh, hard to translate for some people. So it was in those moments that I would pull him back into a, a earthbound conversation by saying stuff like, so Pat, uh, what kind of shoes did McDuff have? You know, when you played with him, and then he'd go, "Oh yeah, well then," and then he would get into vivid description about what everybody wore and what people were drinking and all this stuff. It, it was great. So I kept pulling him back. That into all memory. came back to him. He could recall that. Yeah, that yeah, and that thing about his memory, you know, post aneurysm. 
um it's it's so fascinating um and that documentary that came out was like a nova documentary about the brain and reclaiming memory uh essentially using pad as a case study for a sort of a science medical show about the brain but here's this amazing guitar player who'd lost his memory and had to relearn you know and they went into detail about that but essentially it was like certain certain doors in his memory were opening triggered by one thing or another mm. uh, could be a photo i remember him telling me that uh some relative came over with a picture book and we're going through and he's like triggering memories of things that he had forgotten. Um, it was a gradual reclaiming of memory over time. So one good anecdote about that was um, uh, Joe Pesci, uh, um, who is, uh, who was, is, a guitar player and a singer. He had done some pop albums like in the early 60s, I think. Um, so he shows up at a Pat gig. This is, man, this is now early 2000s, I think. Yeah, it was before the book came out because I included it in the book as an anecdote about the reclaiming of memory. Uh, you know, and at the blue now, at the the green room, the back the backstage is upstairs. Yeah. So after his set, Pat goes upstairs. He's in the close the door. Um, suddenly, there's knock on the door, and it's Joe Pesci, and he's like, "That was a great set, Pat. You know, you sounded great. Uh, thank you, thank you very much. You know, thank you." And Pesci pauses and goes, "You don't remember me, do you?" Uh. No, well, what do you mean? You're Joe Pesci, the famous actor, Goodfellas? Of course, I, I know who you are. He's like, no, 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 no. Uh, I was the bartender at the club where you played with McDuff up in Harlem. And I'll tell you what you used to drink. You used to dr order grasshoppers. And, and Pat said when he heard that, he tasted the drink and it just, open a door and images were flooding into his brain like like a rush hour subway that had been forgotten and suddenly his head was full of memories of that time and you know similarly uh i was triggering some of his memories and asking him these silly questions but they really got him back on the track of uh recalling vividly some of the scenes uh, of playing in Harlem and, and those days um, when he and George Benson were like friendly rivals on the scene in the, in the early sixties. So, yeah, man, I mean, I, I maintain a relationship with Pat up until uh, the very end. We did uh, Joel Harrison, uh, the great guitar player, composer, band leader, uh, organized a, um, like a benefit for Pat that we did online during COVID when he was sick. Um, and uh, various guitar players came together to pay tribute to Pat. He was watching. It was an online thing. I remember I was like hosting with Joe and I was toasting Pat with a glass of cab. Uh, although Pat's preferred drink was Chimay, may I say. Uh, I remember having to 
leave the session a couple of times to go out and get a six pack of Chimay hmm. so that the session could continue. But yeah, we did that, uh, that, that, uh, we stream, we stream that online uh, benefit, uh, for Pat that had included so many great guitar players, uh, paying tribute to him. Um, and then he passed and then we all got together and did a benefit concert in 2021 in Summers Point, New Jersey, uh, at the Gateway Playhouse. Um, again, paying tribute to Pat and so many credible players showed up, uh, Fareed Hawk and Russell Malone, Dave Stryker, uh, man, so many others, Chico Pinheiro, uh, uh What was extraordinary about that night was uh, Fareed Hawk, who is a great lover of Pat and an incredible player, the uh, great guitarist from Chicago. He played uh, the music from Joyous Lake and he had a special guest drummer, Kenwood Denard, who played with the ferocity and youthful energy that he'd played 39 years earlier on the original recording. So that was a, a beautiful uh, reunion of Kenwood with that music. And to see that cat unleash uh, that chi on the kit was uh, remarkable, miraculous. Uh, yeah, so Pat, man. Uh, from 1975 until the time that he passed, I had uh, an ongoing uh, uh, relationship with him, love love relationship. I, I won't even get into the humor on the road and stuff. The, just hilarious. <laughs> Since we're talking about the old masters... Uh, what is this I hear now that John McLaughlin is is retired? Who said that? Gary Husband. How so? The European tour that followed the fourth the dimension, man. Tour, the fourth fourth dimension, which now has a fifth person. Right. Uh, played a short tour of Europe, and at okay. the end, uh, he said, "That's it. I'm only going to do uh, one-offs." Uh, for special occasions, and I'm I'm not going to play anymore in concert tours and things. Well, asked asked Gary about it, and he said, "Yeah, that that was it. It's over." I I knew they had done that fourth dimension tour. I didn't think that that tour was going to come to the states. I assumed that was the end of John's touring in the states, as he had mentioned some years ago on that tour with Jimmy Herring. Uh, but of course, the miraculous cure was it a cure? Was it temporary? I don't know. No, his he, arthritis was he, bad enough to make him want to stop playing. Well, he came back from that. Yeah, he came back from it. And what he told me that was so fascinating about it was that it was mind over matter and that he did it through meditation. Mm, yeah, okay. There's more to it, but I'll let it sit right there. Yeah. There's he, a guy. There's a guy that does stuff to help people that he got help from. Great through a through a method. Maybe it's controversial. I don't know. Whatever. Regardless, it allowed him to come back and completely kill it with Shakti, which was amazing to me. Uh, you know, 
it's rough when you see, you know, one of your heroes come back and it's, it's not that good. I've seen situations like that before. Um, this was beyond my expectations. Seeing Shakti, John was playing with the burning intensity and just freewheeling spirit mm -hmm. that was coming right out of uh, Mahavishnu Orchestra mm -hmm. from the early 70s. He applied that to this conversation in this Indian patois with these cats. And it was just a, you know, I remember seeing them the first time in 76. There's that year again. All this had happened in that around that time. They opened for Weather Report in Milwaukee. I saw that. And it seemed to me that the band was levitating a foot and a half above the stage when they were playing. And I got that same feeling seeing them in Portchester at the uh, Capitol Theater. And it was like, wow. I don't know if it was partly due to the tone and the choice of a little gritty distortion on John's electric guitar. But of course, the original Shakti playing that uh, Abe Wechter guitar, there's that thing again about resistance. That instrument, he was fighting that. That was a hard instrument to play. There was some struggle involved. And so for me, I, I, I loved seeing that. Uh, but of course, he blew everyone away back then. Um, but on this tour, man, it was like, it was really a, a merging of, a, a, in a certain way, even arpeggiating on certain tunes like Maya Vishnu. It was a, it was a merging of those two, a beautifully organic blending of Maya Vishnu Orchestra and Shakti that completely blew me away. And leaving that concert, I thought, He'll never retire. <laughs> he, he's just, he's beyond what I thought it would be. And uh, when I interviewed him shortly before that tour, he explained that his two older brothers are in their 90s and they're still very active, bike riding and stuff. Uh, I know John does a lot of, uh, you know, uh, hiking in the mountains and uh, uh, near Montreux. But I think his oldest brother is 97 and he's still biking. And so I'm like, oh, they got the old age gene, I guess. John will be playing till he's in his 90s. Certainly he's going to be playing at home and he's got a home studio and he's going to be recording and producing records for years to come. But when if if it's true that he's retired, uh, I get it. You know, traveling is a bitch. Uh, airplanes are a bitch to, to the, these days, worse than ever. Um, let the man uh, rest a little bit and he'll treat us to his uh, studio recordings for the next 10 years to come. 100%. Yeah, he doesn't know anybody anything at this point. And, and the shows, I saw three of the Shakti and I feel really lucky because he played different on each one. And you're right. He he. There was an unhinged quality to some. Definitely imbued with the spirit of improvisation, yeah. Within the context of that language, the Carnatic thing. But you know, it, those cats were loose. They were really. It was absolutely a jazz band. Of course, 
Indian music shares that improvisational aspect with jazz, but uh, some of those tunes even, th there was a um, quality, like a couple of tunes, I, I, I couldn't name them off the top of my head, but there was a bluesy element mm -hmm. in some of those tunes. Even one tune had a riff directly from Muddy Waters' Rolling and Tumbling. In the context of that Indian music, it was like, that's oh, five in the morning, six in the afternoon. Uh, that's from uh, The Believer. Yeah, that that is an interesting riff. But also the new tunes. So it's, we should say that Shakti has a new album out. Uh, mm. And it's the material is incredible. The writing is incredible. And they were playing that new material. So it was I have it here somewhere. Yeah, very I'm up to the moment, it. it felt. It wasn't to me like, oh, this is Remember Shakti and we're going to play what we play but you know here's our new album you know? yeah and that one tune the last tune on the album where john's uh triggering synth bass lines <laughs> that is far from the original shock t record he he brought yeah. it all together now yeah you know that guy's amazing he never fails to amaze me yeah and 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 speaking of because I don't know how long we have, but as a little segue and a, and a aside, uh, I was thinking of, you know, the things that John did, including the trio with Paco and Al D. Millet. Al, of course, is now recovering from having a heart attack on stage. What the hell? In Romania. That must have been frightening for the audience for his wife backstage and his kid, for him. Um, he's healthy. Uh, he's taking it easy. He's rescheduled all of his gigs that were through the rest of the year. They're, he's coming out in gigs in March and April. So he's coming back, but that's a horrific shock. And uh, I, I, you know, I'm going to actually be interviewing him for a guitar player story and uh just like the the recovery from things pat martina recovering his memory john recovering his flexibility and facility in his hands from arthritis and now al to what degree he's going to be affected by that horrible on stage tragedy uh man i wish him well and i wondered you know, I have a feeling he's going to come back with the same kind of ferocity that he's always had. Oh, yeah. And when I think of Al, I he's like a, a yardstick for me in some way because we're the same age. He's like a few weeks older than me. So is Pat Metheny. We're all 1954. And, uh, you know, I started to think of my own mortality when shit like this happens. Of course, I've had my own brushes with this and that, but um, yeah, Al, Big Al. I remember seeing him in uh, 75. It was the Where Have I Known You Before tour. He was on, again, in Milwaukee. He had debuted at Carnegie Hall. I think he was 19 when he joined the band. I saw him a couple of weeks later in Milwaukee. And uh, I got to go backstage and talk with him and um, Chick 
um, on that tour. That was amazing, 75. And uh, interestingly, or coincidentally, uh, the next day I interviewed Stanley Clark at his hotel room, the Fister Hotel. Uh, and I did a story on him for the uh, alternative weekly publication called the Bugle American, which was a hippie publication, sort of trying to be like the village voice, but maybe more hippie-esque. And that represented my very first paid article as a freelance writer in 1975. So I'm coming up on 50 years in 2025. And so I'm going to release uh, through Backbeat Books, the same publisher that did the uh, original Jocko book and my Mike Brecker book that came out and the Pat Martino book. Uh, they're going to do, uh, oh, here's the Jocko book. They're going to do um, sort of like a book I did in 98, which is this one was called Rockers, Jazz Bows and Visionaries which was a collection of interviews I had done with various people in those three. I segregated them in that way. Uh, I had Zappa in the visionary section. Um, um, anyway, it's going to be called 50 for 50. It's 50 interviews with people I've done since 1975, representing 50 years of, of doing this shit. So working on that now, it'll come out in 2025. Well, we have a big appreciation in, at this program for witnesses of history, and uh, you witnessed a lot of stuff there. What was it like talking to Zappa at that time? When when was that? Um, first time was eighty one. Uh, I had uh, I had come to let's say, let me just jump back a little. I had started. Uh, doing reviews and stuff uh, in 1976. The magic year. Here we are again. Everything revolves around that year for me. Uh, Great year. Uh, I, was, I was a journalism student at the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee. I got in a summer internship at the daily newspaper, the Milwaukee Journal. As part of the internship, you had to do uh, a week on the police beat, a week on the state desk, a week on the copy editing desk, a week in the courts, like that. I was getting a taste of what this life was like and thinking about maybe do I want to go into this as a profession? I don't know. So uh, out of the blue, the guy who had the gig at the newspaper for of writing uh, reviews in the feature department section got arrested and sent to jail. There was a, actual, a guy I knew. I actually jammed with him a bit. Uh, he was a great blues harmonica player, Stephen Wiest. He ended up, uh, through a very bad mishap, he he went to jail. And they came to me and said, you want to do this? So suddenly I found myself doing reviews for the daily newspaper and interviews with for the feature department. So, but I was doing everyone from Tammy Wynette to Kiss to Barney Kessel to the circus to Up With People, everything. Roger Whitaker, uh, I interviewed Mr. Rogers. You know, I was doing 
everything. My name was getting in print in a professional sense. I had written for the campus newspaper um, and uh, had actually interviewed Keith Jarrett for that, um, but started writing and getting paid for it at this daily newspaper uh, in 76. Uh, by 1980, I was ready to leave town. I put out my resume all around the country, willing to go anywhere, uh, got a call back from a publication on Long Island called Good Times, which I believe is still around. The publisher, Richie Bransifort, um, they flew me out for an interview. Um, I didn't even know what Long Island was. I wasn't sure. I just, I was, I was, uh, I also applied to a, a, a feature editor gig in Newport News, Virginia. I was willing to go anywhere, but I got hired at this place, Good Times, and um, it was a weekly entertainment publication covering Long Island. So they would do stuff like, um, you know, the Stray Cats were a popular local band, Brian Setzer. Uh, oh, I just, I had, uh, I found a couple of these, by the way. So I ended up, I was managing editor, but I also wrote. So I did uh, uh interview with Harry Chapin, went out to his house, you know, uh, hung out there, talked about boxing. He was a great boxing fan. Uh, shortly after taking a gig was the thing with Lennon, you know, so we did a cover on Lennon and uh, uh, did one on uh, uh, Divine, John Waters movie had just come out, all kinds of shit. So in that context, I first interviewed Zappa and it was an in-person interview at his hotel room. Um, and I remember I had a pair of like very cool 1920s kind of shoes on, two-tone, very hip. Uh, and he loved those shoes. So he was talking about these shoes before the interview started, you know, and he was like, damn. And uh, so the next time I interviewed him for Downbeat, that was a cover story in 83, uh, like two years later, he's like, you're the guy with the shoes. <laughs> So he was known to be an irascible figure who didn't like to be interviewed, but my shoes broke the ice, right? And he remembered me. So we had a great conversation. Um, that was uh, a downbeat uh, cover story. There's like a little side note to that. We we did a, a photo session in Zappa's hotel room for the cover of this uh, might have been March of, of 83. And the cover was taken, the cover photo was taken by Daryl Pitt, who was a freelance photographer at the time. And, uh, you know, he did that photo and we ended up hanging out. And in the course of hanging out after that photo shoot, Zappa had split, now we're just talking. He says to me, Hey, uh, let me ask you something. This guy wants me to be his manager, and I've never done anything like that. I'm a photographer. His name is Andreas Vollenweider. He's a harp player. What do you think? Should I do that? I don't know anything about managing. And uh, he had 
come across the Vollenweider through being the house photographer at the Montreux Jazz Festival for a couple of years where Vollenweider played and had a caught on with Europe before he got a record deal with Sony. And I guess they had some bonding uh, through photography, uh, shooting him at the festival and hanging out with him and stuff. And so Vollenweider says, came to him and said, we have such a good relationship, a good rapport. Would you be my manager? And Daryl Pitt was like, I don't know anything about that. So he, he ends up becoming the manager of this guy who has a gigantic smash album put out by Sony Music in 94, I think. And then subsequently becomes Michael Brecker's manager. And then many others after that and is regarded as the hardest ball-busting manager in the business today with record companies and anybody. He's uh, he's a hard-ass, great, he's the bad cop that you want. If you want representation, you want to maintain a good face in public and with your uh, relationships with people, good cop, bad cop, he's the bad cop that you need. And so he's now you know, one of the most greatest but most notorious artistic managers in the business now. And it was funny because the notion of even going into that came from that photo shoot with Zappa back in 83. I interviewed Zappa after that a couple of times, but those were uh, phone interviews. One was strictly about guitar players, technique and stuff. And that's what, you know, and he... He didn't say that to me, but he had said in a previous interview with someone uh, about John McLaughlin, he said uh, something like, oh, he certainly knows how to make the guitar sound like a machine gun or something, yeah. <laughs> something like that. Yeah. And it's true. They pick every note thing that John has. Yeah. Uh, also, not everybody picks every note. And, and no. That that's a whole dividing line there anyway. I mean, finding yeah. guys for the Mahavishnu project, they think that I want guys that, that pick every note. I don't. I'd like you to pick some notes. I think some things sound cool when you pick. Uh, let me ask you a question about the Mahavishnu project, because that might have been where I first met you when you were playing with that band. Was Pete McCann the first guitarist on that gig? Yeah. Okay. And it might have been the venue. It was in the village somewhere. I can't remember what. Bottom line? No. I saw you at the bottom line later. In factory? Uh, Something on Bleecker Street? Oh. Oh, uh, Lion's Den? Maybe. That's East West Villagey. Um. Yeah. And then, uh, funnily enough, uh, around the same time, uh, Joel Harrison had like a tribute band for, was it Pink Floyd or somebody? He had like a, he was in a band that was playing the music of. Yeah, we, it, we call those repertory ensembles, Bill. I, I don't know what that means, man. So, uh, yeah, so that's where I met you, I think. But then I saw you over time with uh, 
Matheny and Derek Bailey at the knitting factory during a snowstorm. I don't know if you remember the snowstorm, but I don't remember I the drive-through. Uh, maybe it wasn't because I was living in Woodstock at the time, and we drove to the gig, and it was a horrible snow snowstorm. Maybe it wasn't by the time we got to Manhattan. But then I, there was another famous gig. You'll have to tell me an anecdote about this. Uh, in, uh, what is it called? Battery City Park or something like that with Ornette, where they they unplugged the thing. It, like, it was went past the curfew and they shut it down. They like turned the music off Yeah, in the middle of a song. Yeah, I can. Tell I mean, you. I was like, "What the hell was that about?" <laughs> well, just I can tell you, all those are interesting moments too, because um, I mean, I and I played at at uh, Lincoln Center, Alice Tully Hall with Cecil Taylor Trio, William Parker, and you know, so there were. I don't know what. what well, let's get start with the Ornette one. Well, the thing about the Ornette one was that it was too long. It was really long. It was a big program. If you recall, it I was, remember. Uh, or it was Ornette with Donardo and uh, Sultan Khan, and I think Badal on tabla. Right. And then it was us, the harmonic chamber players, and then that went to the trio with Ornette, Charlie, and Billy Higgins. And so, who would have been cut off was Billy Higgins with with Ornette and Charlie, and. Uh, yeah, the city, I mean, because the, the, the curfew thing in, in at that time, maybe there was some sort of crime concern, maybe there was some sort of concern, but the police and the city, yeah, they, they weren't playing around. I think it was a union concern, probably. That, well, there's that too, but that was a huge crowd. I, I remember that was a concern at Carnegie Hall all the time. The artists would mention it. We got to go. We really got to go. They're going to charges double yeah. you know if we go past this minute you know we gotta we gotta stop right now union definitely and it was um what year was that 2000 okay uh and we recorded the piece called la statue which he wrote for the statue of liberty we recorded at harmonic studio so i'm hoping that tape will emerge at some point that place up in harlem yeah near the train station yeah exactly and, and uh, i remember the opening night uh they had a party mm -hmm. for the you were you were there right at that opening night party that he threw with donardo and everybody was there and there was some playing that went on that night very informally in the corner that was cool yeah also in the in the uh in the uh archive there is i did drum duets with donardo and that was really fun and interesting. Right. That was around the time I started recording drum duets, like with Wordico and Alex Klein, and just you know, being in the musical box, there was double drumming. I, I kind of like playing with other drummers. I remember seeing uh the Song X tour when they played, I don't know if it was Carnegie. Uh Town Hall. And Town Hall, okay. And Donardo's electric kit like went out. Mm -hmm. And so Jack was just you know, looking over, like, what the hell's going on? It was gone. <laughs> yeah, but uh, you got to see Jack with Ornette and Charlie, and what a yeah. that was, you know, with Pat. Yeah, I yeah. saw Song X, and, and they they cleared the, the house with uh, endangered species at the end. 
I remember seeing, because uh, that was right at a moment when Pat had get, gathered, like had gained a huge audience with this very lovely music, this very melodic, almost romantic music. Oh, yeah. You know, oh, and I remember rows of people getting up and leaving. Like, you know, it was not their cup of tea. They came to see that lovely melodic stuff, the lyrical stuff. So imagine and this what, was not that. Imagine what happened to us in the sign of four. Yeah, Just that shit was, that was some scrunky ass shit, man. <laughs> People wow. were so upset. They were crying. They were like leaving and they were like, they couldn't believe how loud it was. And that was Pat. That wasn't Derek. You know, well, Pat, I know. Cause wow. that's uh, what is it? What was it? No tolerance for silence. Yeah, he'd already that, been there. He was yeah. going to bring that right over. And uh, he was noisier than Derek in some ways. Absolutely. Uh, but that yeah. was, you know, that was my baby. I mean, that was, I was playing with Derek duo. I was playing with Wordico duo. And I'm going to Pat, Pat Matheny group gigs, of course. And, uh, you know, getting to really cherish seeing the Matheny group with Lyle Mays and and knowing what that was a very a lot of variations over the years and then uh I meet Pat and and he said I heard you doing a record you did a record with Derek Bailey and so mm. I'm already like what Pat cares about Derek Bailey and he's like yeah I'm a big fan I said okay just explain to me like how are you a big fan of of Derek he goes when I was a teenager and when I was coming up, I made it my business to know every guitar player you could possibly know and what they did on the instrument. That's how far this guy goes. And he knew the Derek stuff. He knew, of course, there's the Dave Holland Derek duo record on ECM. Um, you know, there's there's all this stuff. And I said, well, would you like, you know, we could meet. You can meet Derek. We can have dinner. He goes, I'd love to have dinner with him. And then I'm starting to like walk away. And I said, wait a minute. What about you and me, Derek and Paul? And he immediately said yes. And then it just became a logistics thing of, you know, getting Derek and getting the label and getting everybody, you know, to do how we were going to do it, which was live part and part studio. And, uh, and then I titled everything and uh, chose the takes and did edits some of that time with Pat. Um, and I kind of thought we were co-producing it. And then he said, no, you're producing it. Well, kind of like, no, you, you produce it. <laughs> but that was I remember, um, I remember seeing Derek Bailey at Roulette with, with company. Yeah. With Laswell and. Hans Reichel and different people that, you know, coming from Milwaukee, where the music that I was hearing live was pretty much blues based because of its proximity to Chicago. The gift of that was that I also got to see Holland Wolf live and Muddy Waters and Shaky Horton and all these cats. I saw all the real deal blues guys in small clubs, but it's sort of 
you know, I think I, I think I was more open-minded than, than the average person. But when I came to New York, certain shit, I was like, what? You can do that? I have no... The first thing was uh, uh, like Elliot Sharp, definitely, was like, uh, you can play like that? I didn't think you could do that. Or uh, Fred Frith. I did an interview with Fred Frith for a downbeat story in 83. And he had an album out. Uh, it had Dancing in the Streets on it. Do you, do you know which one I'm talking about? Yeah. Gra Gravity. Gravity. Okay. So that was like an avant-garde version of that tune, Dancing in the Streets, which Bowie and Mick Jagger later covered. But he had this very catchy, it actually got airplay. It was sort of avant-garde, but still within the context of that tune. And I listened to that album in preparation for interviewing him without having any history, understanding. I was naive and stupid at the time. I didn't, there was no internet. You know, I didn't research it too well. So I showed up at his place in the... Um, Lower East Side, I can just picture where it was, but I can't remember the name of the street. So we start talking, and he, you know he's very—he's a very sweet man, a very gentle and courteous individual. He's British; he's got no choice. So um, yeah, yeah. So um, it becomes apparent within fifteen minutes that I don't know what. I'm talking about that I that I know nothing. I'm naive. And so he goes, I have an idea. Sit right here. I'll be right back. And he comes back with a stack of albums that says, why don't you listen to these and come back next week and we'll talk. And it was like Henry Cow and everything, the art bears and all this shit, you know, and I'm like, uh, and then most mind bendingly of all, was the guitar solos album. And I was like, what the, you know, and that was a what the fuck moment for me, similar to what we talked about Holdsworth and other things that upset your understanding of the instrument entirely. That record guitar solos was one of those opening up a door to a different universe, a different attitude about music making that really liberated me in a certain way. Uh, and and that began my adventure in New York early on and seeing Zorn and David Moss and all these people and, and just like being interested in that, you know, at, at coming out of this uh, somewhat blues background, fusion, whatever. Uh, but then here's this other thing, man. And it was like, I dig it. <laughs> you can do that. Uh, John Zorn playing duck calls and buckets of water. And that whole aesthetic was very uh, fascinating to me. And seeing Derek Bailey was part of it and Hans Reichel and all these guys. And suddenly there was a whole world of music I had access to that I had no idea existed prior to moving to New York. And so the really so educated me. Is the so-called downtown scene of the '80s was really a thing, and yeah. you know, it's where where I first ran into Zorn and Tim Byrne and Bill Frizzell and John Lindbergh and 
uh, Ned Rothenberg and uh, just uh, Christian Marclay, uh, all these different guys that had completely unique approaches to things. And that were your, that was the marching order. You have to have your own way of doing things. I, I have a story about every one of the guys you just mentioned. Uh, Zorn and Byrne, I first met at, uh, they were working at the Soho Music Gallery, a record store. I was hanging out in that moment. This would have been like 81, maybe 82, 81 and 82. There was a club in Soho called uh, 55 Grand where Jocko like lived more or less. Mike Stern and Laney Stern lived upstairs from that place and Jocko was crashing with them. He was living there too. And so I was at that club almost every night and the, you know, James Blood Elmer lived around the corner. He, he was in the audience. Cecil was there all the time. Everybody, Sanborn, Sco. I saw Dr. John there. The audience was, you know, a lot of musicians. So one night I just strolled away from the club, walked down to, I think it was Green Street, a few blocks away, went into this record store, and they were playing like... Uh, I think it was Fela music. And I was like, wow, what's that? So that it was Zorn. This is back in the day when educated people worked at record stores and hipped you to, oh, you like that? Check this out and this. And that guy leads to this. And that like that was my internet. Back in the day, you go to a record store and these these individuals were educated and they were connecting the dots for stuff and opening up your mind and this so sorry that it's long gone but in that moment tim Byrne and zorn hit me to a lot of stuff just like in a flash of discovery and again it was like uh it was maybe a week after i had that experience with fred frithery laid all these records on me a stack this tall then here's zorn doing that and you know so i'm this neophyte it new to new york and all these people are educating me and i'm like taking it all in it's all good show me more feed me more i'm hungry so that was a great experience first three years of being in new york i saw the sunrise every morning i stayed up i was doing three gigs a night you know going to one gig going to the next gig, ending up at bradley's till right. four in the morning you know i remember being at the bar at bradley's on one side there's George Benson, on the other side is Cecil drinking cognacs. And I'm like, I love New York. Art Blakey's in the audience, you know, talking shit. Yes. Uh, yeah. 83 is when I started playing with Derek. I was 20. He came to live in New York at that time. He had like a grant right. to live in New right. York. So he's playing shows in like basements, you know, he's like the saint. Remember the saint? I remember that place. That was Zorn's joint, right? I remember yeah, it. So it's the trio with Zorn and George Lewis and Derek and they're playing. And oh, I, yeah. of course, I make sure I get my ass there. And uh, and I was playing weird music already. I had kind of left jazz rock. And, uh, and I went up to Derek and I said, Mr. Bailey, I'm a really big fan of your work. And and he said, oh, do you play an instrument? I said, yeah, I'm a percussionist. And uh, I'd really love to play with you someday. And he said, how's tomorrow? Perfect. 
And, you know, yeah. you pick me up, you get me an amp, we're going to go to you where you want to replay. And I recorded all those sessions. Wow. Really good stereo. And I have them. Um, and we hit it from the minute. I mean, it was it was crazy, actually, because I had heard only his solo music, I think. And then I saw him with one of the companies at Roulette. Right. And that was it. And then when I heard him with Trio without a percussionist, and I started listening to his solo records and playing along to his solo records, which I always give people as a good tip. If you want to figure out how to play that kind of music, maybe you play along to a Cecil solo record or a Derek solo record and figure out how you fit in with that. It's like music minus you. And, uh, and I was ready to play with Derek and we hit it off and he loves percussionists. And I was later told by George Lewis, oh, Derek, he loved you. He, he thought you were the best percussionist in America. You were his favorite. And I never got an inkling of that because he wow. was, was so stoic. You know, you never would get that from Derek. But apparently, you know, because I know that's how I got the, the Cecil gig. Well, Cecil heard me with Derek. I know that's how I got the Zorn gig. Zorn heard me with Derek. So in a way, it's a it was a funny launching thing for me because he's so esoteric and I had but I had come from Lark's Tongues and Aspic with Jamie Muir on percussion and then Jamie Muir led me to Music Improvisation Company which led me to Derek uh what was your situation with Zorn at that time he was hiring me to do his music I did the premiere of Darts which was a dance and uh, ensemble of, of musicians that included guys like Christian Marclay and um, me. And I'm trying to think who else was on that. Music for a dance performance? No, it was a game structure that oh, okay. you dancers to work with musicians in this. It's like a sextet in a circle, hmm. circling the dancers and the audience encircled us. And and there was a, a, a announcer who called moves and you would have certain so I did that we like did the some, Cobra like the flashcard yeah, game stuff except it was audible uh what the moves were he had a guy announcing them so I, I did, did the premiere of darts we did duets he played in my ensemble my early Greg Bendian ensembles it wasn't Greg Bendian project um so yeah I mean he had heard about me from Derek and and uh and that was sort of a seal of approval. So I got to work with a lot of those guys because I started at the top, really. I started with their idol. I mean, I, I didn't have much of a sense of Derek's power, but I kind of did. But over time, I realized, oh, this, this guy's like the beginning. And then when I had Fred Frith on this program, he told me the story of how uh, he met Derek. Somebody said, you got to go hear this guy, Derek Bailey. He's playing at the solo concert. And he went. And there was no one in the theater but Fred. And Fred sat there and it was Derek Solo and Fred alone in this theater. So, you know, for Fred, Derek's huge. For everybody, Derek is huge. And rightfully so. I mean, he, he's a guy that reinvented the instrument just in a way that Holdsworth did. Oh, you would appreciate this. I met Holdsworth when he came around with that trio opening for Chikoria's first electric band with Scott Henderson on guitar. And he had a trio with Jimmy Johnson and Chad Wackerman playing to a cassette tape that had backing tracks. What? He didn't have keyboards yet. 
And I snuck backstage. This was in Englewood. And so it would have been, what? what is the first electric band stuff? Like 85, 86? Yeah, I think 85, yeah. Okay, so that's when it is. And he's doing this tour with just the two guys and tape. And um, I go backstage and I said, you know, um, Alan, I'm, I'm playing with a guitarist right now. You might might have heard of him, Derek Bailey. And he goes, yeah, I could never quite figure out if that cat, that chap could actually play the guitar. <laughs> That's what a friend of mine uh, said about Mark Rebo. <laughs> I think he's a fraud. I don't think he can really play, you know. But so guy like Hallsworth, he you know he played in some out shit, but he wasn't having any of that. Alan, and to think of of Bailey as a guitarist, I think is already a bit of a problem because I think of him as uh, an instrumentalist, and that's kind of the best way. That's your, I think that's your foot in the door. If you're going at it looking for your guitar kicks, that that's not going to happen for you, and you're going to be like no. But if you say to him like. <laughs> Like, this is a guy who's just making sound and organizing it in some way on this instrument that's more compositional as it is improvisational because there are things he's doing with inversions and things that he's doing with rhythmic patterns. But you kind of have to listen to him solo. Mm. I really feel like that's the, the in, that's the gateway, you know? And then mm. you go, oh, then you put that with duo. And then you put that with trio. And that was another thing that we that we did. Derek and I did workshops, improv workshops at colleges where the audience closed their eyes and Derek would say, okay, now you are going to listen. And it was like a, a five-piece band, I think. And he goes, when you can't tell how many people are playing, raise your hand. And it always went up after three. That was interesting. Mm -hmm. Because people can hear the two things, they can hear maybe the three things. Once you get into the four things and everybody's going bonkers, it's just an interesting way because I, I looked at, and you would appreciate this too, which is, you know, you look at the grasp or the reach of the audience for out music, right? And you were right. open, you were, you were ready to go because you saw somehow something was going on there. You're an intellectually curious person. But you look at the general public and what their access is to the music, particularly at the in the in the 80s. And you look at how a lot of that was predicated upon an audience that had some semblance of music education or arts education in their grammar school education. So that starts to fade after the Reagan era. And that music can be less and less in favor and more and more needs support and more and more is struggling and more and more is, is kind of uh, detached from what we saw in the 80s. So I wanted to ask your opinion as a person who knows a lot of what's going on musically and, and, and creative music, especially, what do you think is the, the, dis the disposition now? of guys who are trying to do stuff different, of groups that are, are continually fusing together all these different ingredients, no matter what it's gonna sell. And some of it hits and some of it doesn't. I mean, we can talk about groups like Fleet Foxes or Les Claypool's Frog Brigade. I mean, there, there's all these different forms of weirdness now. 
what but what do you think what do you think is the status uh, there's so much music just that it's all been liberated from you know once upon a time you had to be signed to a label and so the number of the amount of product was so minimal and now it's a flood of shit and I can't keep up with it. So the bands you just mentioned, I have no idea. So I don't know. Uh, I can't pretend to know all that's going on. However, I do know that I am inundated with products sent to me by artists directly and it's all very creative and it's all, everything is intriguing to me and no one's ever heard of it. And it's, I struggle to get, uh, coverage on it with editors who don't want to know about it because they're flooded with shit and they're just trying to dig out from underneath it. And meanwhile, I will pitch stories to editors. This this is a really noteworthy new band or a new idea or new grouping of instruments. And I I mean I it's I get a flood of shit. I get uh, twenty records a week, maybe more. Uh. And not, nothing's bad. Once upon a time, there was bad shit that came out and I easily dismissed it. But there's so many creative ideas floating around that it's hard to wrap your head around it and categorize it uh, because so much is bouncing around and we have access to all the music uh, that ever was created on earth and it's being assimilated and people are, you know, just like, Shakti is East meet what meets West, but what about Shakti with hip hop and uh, Willie Nelson singing vocals? And it's also in some odd, you know, it, there's a million ideas floating around and I can't keep up with them. So to answer that question, I, I, I hardly think that there's any industry per se anymore. It's all artist driven. There are, are labels. I do get these recordings sent to me by publicists who work for on behalf of labels but often the far more interesting things are done by individuals who are uh passionate about uh the musicians they're creating with and they come up with bouncing ideas off each other they come up with a personal sound that uh is completely valid if not uh you know, uh, worthy of wider recognition. Uh, so, you know, to describe a scene, uh, it, it's it's hard for me because there's so much. If I would define it within the realms of just jazz, per se, and even within that, things are like, you know, does, how does, uh, how does, uh, uh, James Brandon Lewis relate to Wynton Marsalis, relate to Mary Alverson, relate to et cetera, et cetera. You know, it's hard. I don't know that I can answer that question. But I know that I'm interested in hearing all of it. And often, uh, like, just this is just off the top of a stack of records that I just got in the mail, right? So here's one. Check this out. No idea. Okay. So it's called Jubilee. The band leader 
is a drummer. I haven't even read this, so I don't know where he's from, but his name is Timo Volbrecht. Could be Finnish. It's got Brad Shepik on guitar. That I can't that catches my attention. And Jerome Harris on bass. Nothing wrong with that. I'll check this out. And it's probably going to be amazing. And now I'm going to go try to pitch downbeat or somebody. Yeah, could I uh, review Timo Volbrecht's new album, Jubilee? They're going to go, what? Who? What? I I pitch, for every 10 albums I pitch, maybe I get one assignment. And not that I'm being squeezed out of the picture. They send me, well, thanks for that. But here, review these three. And it's more well-known people. And in fact, blatantly, I've had editors say, well, we need to have uh, names that the readers recognize. We can all, we have to cover, you know, like even like, well, I like Mary Halverson, but our readers, and this is not Downbeat, this is another publication. They certainly would cover Mary Halverson, but you, you try to pitch anything like that and they uh, you get a lot of resistance because... They're flooded with shit and they want to appeal to their readers and therefore the, you know, the number of names that uh, are qualified to be reviewed in a certain way is, uh, is minuscule compared to what is being put out. So often, you know, I'll listen to this record or any other 20 that I get this week or more and I'll think, this is killing me, but I won't be able to write about it. Um, and this is why people are starting blogs, because they can't get assignments to write about what they like or are passionate about or that they can write at length about. You know, um, it is rare to get uh, an assignment over 3,000 words in any of the publications I write for. And yet the last three blog posts that I put up were 15,000, you know, and I can delve into it and attach YouTube clips to e examine this shit. And it's, it's far more rewarding uh, in a soul sense, writing about that stuff in my blog, but there ain't no money attached to it. And I still have to pay my rent. So I'd still do many assignments uh, for magazines, you know, noteworthy shit, but these under the radar things are getting covered less and less. Yeah. Uh, you know, like for instance, uh, Paul Wernico has a new record out. You probably know about it. It's great. It's very creative. And I got an assignment from Downbeat to review it because he is so well known. And it's, it's, you know, if it wasn't his name, if it was someone else's name, that the music might be considered too esoteric to pass muster in that situation. Um, and there's just endless amounts of, um, sometimes I get a thing from an editor saying, well, oh, okay, well, we've already, almost like a quota, we've, we've done enough ECM albums lately, so we'll pass on this one even though it might be amazing, like the new uh, Ralph Towner record or something. Uh, yeah, but we just did a whole bunch of ECM albums. So there's 
so many criteria that comes into it from the editor's point of view that's hard for me to understand and penetrate in some ways. And certainly for these artists, like Kenny Wessel's got a new album. You you know him, right? He played with Arnett. I can't get anybody. I think it's great. And I think he's great. And he's continually creative. He surprises me every time. But it's hard to get a review of his album in the magazines that I write for. Because he's not Kurt Rosenwinkel, name-wise, name recognition-wise. He's got his own thing. I admire his playing greatly. But uh, it seems that the list... The, the list of people that are being acknowledged is very finite compared to what's the amount, the flood of, of creative expression that's coming out. It does not keep up with the finite coverage of that stuff. That's frustrating. Well, there's always a lot of great music that's being made and music is a force that moves forward. It progresses, it evolves. Um, what a pleasure to talk with you, Bill Milkowski. What? I just got started. Uh, well, you did two hours already, bro. You got to. Can I back. show you one thing before I leave visually? Okay. Just a visual, just to run down something funny. Okay, man. So the Jocko book, right? Wow. I wrote it initially in 1995. Um, I just I I wanted to run down this. Uh, thing with the Jocko book. So it came out in 95 as a hardcover, right? This is still wrapped, so that's why it's glistening. Okay. Then it came out in a soft cover. Then it came out in a hardcover in Japan. Then it came out in a soft cover in Japan. Okay, here's the Italian version that came out shortly after that. Here's the Slovakian version. Here's the uh, Polish version. Here's the... Uh, I don't even know what company this, what what country this is. Some other version. Uh, here's the Spanish version. Blah blah blah. And then finally, I was able to do the tenth anniversary edition in 2015, which was an updating. It was actually a complete rewrite. It's twice as long as the original, and uh, yeah, I updated it a lot. So, meanwhile, I'm still getting royalty checks from that shit. You dig? I dig that it's in, in, in so many languages speaking to how important a figure Jocko is. And yeah. I also, you know, you've coaxed me here. So I, I want to ask you, I had heard tell of Jocko orchestral music. I have heard tell of Jocko 12-tone music. I've heard tell of all sorts of projects that Jocko had going that we don't really generally know about. In the same way Manolo Badrena told me, um, that Zawinul had atonal music and and orchestral music that nobody will ever know about unless they are super fans or geeks like us. So I'm wondering if you could tell us a little bit, a bit about some things that we'd be surprised exist in the Jocko archive. Well, the 12-tone song is called the Balloon Song. Do you know about that? Um, it's been recorded by a few people. Gil Goldstein did a version of it. It's a it's a 12-tone. Somebody did it recently. I don't remember who. Um, and uh, orchestral stuff. Well, I mean, his word of mouth album was full of orchestral stuff, but he also did the Steel Pans Orchestra with strings 
and horns. That was a big uh, project that was never released in the States. There's a big controversy. Yeah. Yeah. Do you, do you know that? I do. So what about thoughts in Florida? I don't know that. Oh, that is that an atonal orchestral piece. Wow. Is it? That's what I've heard, but I have not heard the piece. So got to wonder. I'm just so curious because, you know, obviously these guys are such massive figures that there's going to be stuff we're not going to know that they've done musically. You know, they they're genre jumping guys, too. So you have the holiday for pans? No, I heard it somewhere. You you listen to it. Yep. That's not Jocko on bass. What is it? I I will tell you a story. I got a story about that. I got a million stories. I, gotta tell you them. I should write a book. Um <laughs> yeah, so Jocko did that stuff down at his home in Deerfield Beach, Florida. Um uh, then he came up to New York and uh, started, like I said, living, hanging with Laney and Mike Stern. And it was not a good period for him. He ended up going into Bellevue voluntarily. And he was there for six weeks. Um, I lived near Bellevue, like three, four blocks away on 29th and 2nd Avenue. And I would come visit him every day. And he'd ask me to bring him a roll of quarters so he could go down to uh, corner uh, at the end of the hall to go on the payphone and try to call record companies to get a deal for those tapes, the 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 holiday for pants tapes, which he had the master tapes of. He was storing them at uh, Drummer's Collective in a closet, and it's like this was his golden ticket. Is his way back into the business after ostracizing himself for so much provocative public behavior on gigs and otherwise. And it was like, no one wanted to touch Jocko at that time. It was a very much uh, stay away from this guy. He, he's he's crazy now. So he's in Bellevue trying to get back onto the scene, calling Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, who had Cranberry Records out in LA. I know Kareem from the Weather Report days. He's got a, he, Jocko used to carry a signed basketball with Kareem's signature, I thought he faked it until uh, at at Elvin's memorial at the church, Riverside Church. I got there so early. I was sitting in like the fifth row and I was like waiting, like Roy Haynes was going to play. Kareem comes and sits right in front of me. I couldn't say, like, what? Come on, man. He's seven foot three or whatever. But afterwards, I went up to him and I said, I got to ask you, Jocko been claiming that he's got this ball that you signed and no one believes him. He said, oh yeah, I did that. I signed that. Those, I hung out with those guys on a weather report tour. Anyway, so Jocko is in Bellevue. The master tapes for Holiday for Pans are in a closet at the Drummers Collective on 6th Avenue and 15th Street, whatever that was. Mm -hmm. uh, he arranges for my friend Ed McGuire, who's a great bass player, violinist, to who had a car lived in Jersey. He went and got the tapes, picked them up. We we I got Jocko out of Bellevue on a like a three hour pass, and we we're going to converge at this jingle studio on the Upper West Side to mix down some of the masters onto a cassette 
so he could send them out and copy them so he could send them out to all these record companies trying to get a gig. He's trying to get back into the the business. You know, he's got he's sitting on this record that he thinks is his entree back into the scene, although it's pretty esoteric. So uh, I get him out. We meet. We converge. Ed drives up with the tapes in his trunk. We get into the Jingle Studio. Jocko's at the board. He's like so accelerated. His mind is genius. He's his fingers on the board. He's like, no, Stern was drunk that day. No, take him out of the mix. And this guy would have it. He's doing a mix like at super speed um, onto cassette. And then he says to the guy who uh, ran the Jingle Studio, who, this was that night, got us in there, uh, Kenny Jackal. Uh, when we finished, we got like four tracks uh, mixed down to cassette and then gives me the order, copy the, make 12 of these and send them out. Here's the addresses, send them all these guys. Uh, meanwhile, he says to Kenny, uh, let me start store my tapes in your closet here, right? Let me just stash them here. We got to go. I got to get them back to Bellevue or to send the cops after us. So the tapes are in. Uh, Kenny Jackal's studio and they remain there in his closet. They remain there for a long time. Jocko gets out. Brian Melvin, the drummer, gets him out of Bellevue under uh, signed him out. Jock Bellevue, uh, Brian Melvin and his mother were now going to be taking care of Jocko in San Francisco. He's living there. He's doing some gigs. He ends up in back home in Fort Lauderdale and he ends up getting killed. And now, meanwhile, Kenny Jackal's sitting on these tapes in his closet. It's like, fuck, he's got the tapes, Jackal's tapes. He leaves the country. He goes to Singapore with these tapes. But before he did, he had his friend, uh, who he was jamming partners with, uh, Kenny Burrell Jr., Kenny Burrell's son, who was a bass player, who could fake Jocko, he had him come in and play all the bass parts. And if you listen, you'll hear, that's not Jocko. What the fuck? That's not Jocko playing that, you know? And Kenny confessed all this to me after he got out of rehab. He was like, I was I was a junkie. I needed money. I was, I was fucked up. Bad decision, you know? And uh, meanwhile, Kenny Jocko's gone with the master tapes. He's now living in Singapore and he sells the tapes to an innocent guy from Japan, Mr. Osawa, um, who gives him a, quite a huge sum of money for the tapes and puts him out. So meanwhile, the Jocko estate uh, puts in a cease and desist order, and they are able to keep that recording from coming into the States. I ended up seeing one, and I bought it just to hear what was going on in Canada at the Montreal Festival. I should so say, a, though, at, at this point, that it, I just found it. It's on YouTube. So if you well, hear some YouTube, version, forget it. I mean, at that time, there was no YouTube, and it was I know, the, but now, the state trying to keep that out because it was fraudulent, yeah. and they were trying to get some control over what came out post-Jocko. The estate was trying to uh, organize what was happening and so what you hear is not Jocko's base on that uh but on uh, and I still have the original uh, four 
uh, tune uh, cassette that he mixed down that day to present to people, you know, and it's great. It's his music and his uh, he's playing bass pans on it, but he's not, there's no Jocko bass guitar. He was going to fill that in after the fact and never got around to it. And then he passed. So there's, there's a man, don't get me started. There's a million one stories. Let me just, you probably won't use any of this because it's so long, but like I, I was thinking again about Zorn and venues and like the saint that was in the basement of his building on sixth street mm -hmm. in the East village back then. I don't know if you experienced this. I could never get a cabbie to take me all the way to Avenue C. They would go to, they would go to first Avenue and go, that's as far as I go. And I'd have to, I was in a band that had rehearsals on ninth and C and I'd have to walk with my guitar and amp past all the crack houses and shit. Well, do you and, remember when, when, when head Threadgill and air moved to the East village, it was completely like 81. It was like trashed, you know, it was none of this um, gentrified stuff. And you right. would have to take public transportation and walk. Yeah. So you're walking through that area to get right. out to these gigs, to the to lessons, to these guys' houses, you know. Yeah, like I say, the cabs wouldn't go that far east. Did yeah. Did you go to Eight BC? Eight BC. Eight BC. I played, you know, all those places: King Tut's Wawa Hut. Um, what about Chandelier? Chandelier, I did actually with dance. I played a gig with Jocko at Chandelier. Uh, I play guitar and he had bass and we we it was just a jamming gig. It was actually somebody else's. It was James Canning's, this uh, Jamaican dude who sang and played guitar. And he told me to he's like come down and play with me tonight. He didn't tell me Jocko was going to be the bass player. So we're playing this gig and we're just doing like jamming tunes like that song uh, Who Knows from uh, Band of Gypsies. For 20 minutes, right? And so we're playing that song, and I have wah-wah pedal and fuzz, all kinds of shit. And in the middle of the song, Jocko reaches over. He's like, take my bass. Give me your guitar. And we switch. And he's playing my guitar, and I'm playing the, the that oh. simple bass line. And he's fucking wailing. <laughs> he's wailing on it, man. It was... Hilarious. It was great. Uh wow. yeah. I, I, I saw Jocko in the studio once. Um Capo Cultural Center on Bond Street. You know that place? So he had done a recording where he played a lot of the instruments himself, guitar, bass, drums. But then he had like the day I was there, he had George Adams and Joanne Burkeen. Okay. that were adding parts, uh, Miles Evans on trumpet, different shit. Some of it was funk. Some of it was, uh, he did a Wayne Cochran song hmm. called Someone's Cutting In On My Groove uh, with with that he sang. Uh, and this was, you know, was a 24 track? I don't remember. But what happened was, uh, it was, it was that time that was where he was totally out of it, right? And he eventually... He just split and left the tapes there. And like, they like asked him for money or something like Jocko, you know, this has all been on the tab. Like 
we need you to kick in some money here. And he's like, fuck that. And he, he walked away and they, he just left the whole thing there. So those tapes exist somewhere. Somebody's got them. And it was like a whole album of shit. Jock was playing vocals and harmony vocals and funky guitar parts and shit. And it's like, what happened to that? Yeah. Uh, you know, and then, um, man, venues, thinking of all those. Uh, speaking of venues, and this is, I wanted to get this in because and things that blow my, you know, I, I mentioned over the course of this, things that blew my mind. Like, what? Um, your gig with Nels at Tonic. Holy fuck. Interstellar space. That that was like, <laughs> I was I was in awe of that gig at what you guys did with that. That was fucking amazing. You know, and it was probably no, from your point of view, no different than playing with Derek or no. Cecil or any of that shit. But it for me, it was feeding that Sonny Chirac, Electric Miles, Pete Cozy thing inside of me that was hungry for that. And in that moment, to play Trains Interstellar Space, the way you guys did it, fucking blew me away. I loved it. Thank you. It's um it's now mentioned in the Rolling Stone 250 top guitarists, Nels Klein, who they say was well known for his work in Wilco, but is also gone afar afield as Interstellar Space by John Coltrane. So very happy to yeah, see. Yeah, I don't know how much you toured around with that, but the night I saw you at Tonic, uh it was I was falling to the ground with my teeth chattering. <laughs> wow. I guess just, I was like, I mean, it was so in the moment and in the spirit of that music of, of Train and Rashid. Okay, well. I, I just got it. I, I so appreciate that, but it was always an ordeal to play it. It was always a workout. It was it was such a, a tall mountain. Well, there we it is. It as a suite, a suite. I mean, we played it as like right. five movements with probably with an encore, which would have been one down, one up, or or Lonnie's lament. Yeah. And uh, and I had to play. I had to channel Elvin. I had to channel Rashid. I had to cha channel all these train drummers, and then my own thing of trying to make it aggressive enough to translate to what Nels was doing. Cause as you know, he comes in with both barrels. Right. But it, I've, I'm happy to know that people realize that this is one of his big records and kind of an all out record. And it's just me and him. And that grew out of interzone, which was my quartet with him and his right. now uh, Alex on drums right. and various bass players. So, you know, th that's when we, we joked about that. We were like playing so fast. I was playing vibraphone. He was playing these things and we're playing sheets of sound. So he says, oh, you know, if we're going to keep going like this, Greg, we might as well just cover interstellar space. And yes. I one second <laughs> and I said, what if we did? You know, it's a, it was that moment in my house in Teaneck rehearsing in the basement. And I said, what if we did? And then we both started like homework and then we toured it. In fact, that recording, the album which is on Spotify, people can find it, but it's out of print. But 
we prepared and rehearsed and then toured and then recorded gigs after a while and then found the take, which was basically all from this L.A. show at um, a pretty famous club. I can't remember the name of it. And it was really it was captured well. And I, it's yeah, I, I'm I'm so happy to hear that you remember one of those. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I was there, man. It just, you know, I I was a big fan of the Agartha Pangea thing. And that set a template for that kind of music, I guess, uh, you know, uh, Arto Lindsay as well with uh, DNA. Mm -hmm. I guess it got identified. I don't remember somebody in the voice identified as Skronk. You know, uh, that nasty kind of shit that takes it out. I I, I loved the way Nels did that. And uh, mm. Pete Cozy and Sonny Chirac. I remember seeing a Sonny Chirac gig where he was in the heat of a passionate solo and was so playing so intense, not stopping. And at some point I looked and there were three broken strings flailing in the air and he's still he's got he's got three left and he's like one by one they're whoosh, whoosh, and he's still killing it and that is what i got from nels seeing him play with you uh on that interstellar uh space music yeah i hope we can do it again sometime but uh... is there an audience for that kind of intensity anymore it's a really good question. A lot of people come up to me about that record. And again, it got mentioned in Rolling Stone. So I think it's as an extreme, but very carefully crafted. That's the thing about it. Like Sign of Four is very extreme, but it's very roughshod. It's very anything goes. This is very much more focused. And I like that idea of having material to work off of rather than it just being like totally free. Like we're referencing all the time and then we're taking flights and then we're referencing and you had to be true to a certain amount of the material for it to be valid just like with the Mahavishnu stuff you can't take liberties with everything otherwise there's nothing that's a good analogy and what both of those projects have in common is the visceral combined with the intellectual it's a beautiful balance I've always been a fan of that and uh there's other examples we could probably call up but uh yeah. Memorable yeah. night at tonic. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. That that was uh I remember that show. I played there also with his group, uh Nils Klein Quintet, I think it was, with Vinnie Golia and mm. I think who else, maybe Ken Filiano on bass. But yeah, so I, a lot of happy times playing with Nels and and he's really become another kind of player yet again. Yeah. Always that was there. such a great venue, though, Tonic. Yeah. Did you see Derek and Cecil there? Uh, no. Yeah, it's on YouTube again, folks. But yeah, you can hear Derek Bailey play with Cecil, where Derek tunes to the piano, unlike that FMP record, which drives me nuts because he repeats right. tune to the piano. Uh, Derek, you know, I, I asked him, Derek, do you want to tune to my vibraphone? He said, no, don't want that. Uh, too much like Christmas bells. <laughs> I want to have Christmas bells. Uh, yeah. Wow. 8BC was also cool. Uh, I actually played there with a band I had at the time, and guess who opened up for us? Frizzell and Tim Byrne. 
<laughs> the duo. I remember the deadly duo. Yeah. Wow. And uh, you mentioned King Tut's Wawa Hut. I I remember seeing Zorn play uh, like the music of Oscar Pettiford. It was like a beep, straight bebop gig right, right. at that place. Wow. Wow. Well, <laughs> you're, you, I don't know if, if we should keep going or if it's going to be hours and hours because we can do this forever. Uh, just let me tell you one more. You don't have to include any of this, but uh, just Including so, so many, so many names went flying by. Uh, Christian Markley. Yes. I, I remember this gig. I remember seeing him at Danceteria. Mm -hmm. Do you remember that place? Yeah. They didn't always have, that. they didn't often have live music there. Yeah. It was a lot of, that was right when video was coming in and Talking Heads and the first YouTube yeah. album and stuff. Uh, but he did this gig where the audience sort of circled around him. So he had like, he was on the dance floor and he had a turntable that he rigged up with a strap, like a guitar strap. And he was playing it like a guitar. And I don't remember the woman's name, but she was like a, like a, like a, a Buto dancer who had a black raincoat on caked in powder, white powder. And they were slamming into each other. And when they slammed the powder would fly up in the air and he was like generating the music. And it was so avant-garde punk yeah. uh, and, and memorable and just, and again, visceral and they maybe rehearsed it, but it was, it looked like an assault on the dance floor. <laughs> it was great. I don't know if any of that shit happens anymore. I don't know if it does. I know that I was there when it was happening and, uh, I, it's pretty cool. Andy Warhol was in the audience that night. Yeah. I remember looking over, oh, there's Andy Warhol. I say this all the time on the show. Mr. Cage would be sitting in the same row or right next to you. How you doing, guys? Just like that was it. So I remember going to Odessa like a lot and seeing Philip Glass eating borscht there, you know, <laughs> that neighborhood. Or just to see Ed Blackwell in public transportation four times. For subway, bus, taxi, bus, four times, just in, for no reason. Or every time going to see Billy Higgins play with, with someone, he didn't show up and Blackwell played. Just spoiled rotten. Come on. I got to interview Blackwell during a gig at the Vanguard. Like I did, did it in the afternoon the next day. And we talked for like two hours. Yeah, It was great. It was great. He was great. He's going to be in that book that I'm working on, uh, 50 for 50. He'll be included as one of the uh, people that I interviewed over 50 years' time. And probably the Keith Jarrett interview, too. Good. Uh, probably I'm not Matheny, though. <laughs> okay. I'll read it, though. Yeah. Those, those are all my favorites. And and I'm, uh, I'm with you, trying to get the cats on tape, trying to get the cats in print, and so much history that we've experienced and, and appreciate. Yeah, it's a noble effort. And you, um, I don't, I totally relate to your open-minded, open-eared policy toward music, listening, and playing. I don't want to be bored. Yeah. 
you got it's eat all good flavors many different scents many different textures it's true bill milkowski i'm gonna let you go okay this is, this so is, you'll call back tomorrow we'll do part two yeah man <laughs> i'm part three and part four oh shit everybody Very good bill milkowski man he's he's on it and he has Thank been you. for many years and uh i thanks everybody for listening Hit us on uh, Patreon and thank you for listening. It's just been a pleasure. Thank you, Bill. See you next time. Thanks a lot.